You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. invite you to turn to Matthew 26. We're going to begin reading with verse 17. We're going to read 17 through 19, and then skip down to verse 26 and read verses 26 through 29. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now looking down to verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word. And Father, we do ask that you would be pleased, Lord, to speak to us now as we collectively uh, look to you, O Father. We pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts. Pray, Father, you would open our hearts, give us understanding, see the true wonder of these passages, see the true wonder of just what is taking place, what is unfolding here. So, Father... Help us to these ends for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, having spent some time on circumcision and baptism, as promised, uh, this morning we turn really to begin our study of the Lord's Supper. And I'm confident that we're more familiar with the Lord's Supper than baptism uh, simply due to the frequency of which we observe the Lord's Supper in regards to baptism. Um, There is really no set frequency in Scripture, as I've said in an earlier message, of how many times or when we should um, um, observe the Lord's Supper. In other words, what I'm saying is Jesus doesn't tell us to do this every Sunday or to do this every other Sunday or to do it once a month or once a quarter. Uh, we do not have a, a, an established pattern, but we're to do it often, and we do do it often, and we do it with a much greater frequency than, than baptism. Now, all of that having been said, um, we, um, we find ourselves to be more familiar with the Lord's Supper, but um, I, I think if you're like me, you'll find, you'll find the Lord's Supper to be such a mysterious, uh, there's a lot of mystery to it, isn't there? And I've never uh, come to the place where I've been super confident that I've, you know, I've, I've got this one figured out. And 
I'm not sure that that would really be a good place in this side of glory to get to anyway. Uh, I find that every time I study the Lord's Supper, I learn so much more about the Lord's Supper. And it's usually within the basics that um, I discover these new things. It's not in the, in, the, in the fine print, if you will. It's in the bold print. And for that matter, a lot of times our errors and any errors that we could fall into, they really do fall into the basics, don't they? It isn't often in the basics where we run a file. Uh, it's not in the fine print. So I want to go to the basics this morning is where I would like to begin. Now, if we're to consider the Lord's Supper at the basic level, if we're going to consider the Lord's Supper at the foundational level, if you will, then we need to turn the pages way back into uh, salvation history. In fact, we need to go back to the Passover, as many of you are well aware, and actually all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, to the event that we call Passover. And if you want to start turning uh, really back to Genesis, because we're going to go further than Exodus 12 uh, this morning, we're actually going to start all the way back in Genesis 15. And one of the reasons for that is I want to try to take a look at a bird's eye view of this this morning so that we can see how, really how all of this is put together. Uh, it's kind of like the zoom feature on your computer or on a PDF file. You can zoom in, you can zoom out. We're going to zoom out uh, just a little bit to try to see the broader picture this morning. Now, it's important to note that when Jesus institutes both baptism and the Lord's Supper, He doesn't do this in a vacuum. It's really important that we understand that. He doesn't do it in a vacuum, as we've seen, behind, behind baptism is the sacrament of circumcision. And we've seen circumcision points to our union. It pointed to union with the Messiah who was to come, uh, to the promised Messiah, uh, the Son promised in Genesis 3.15. It pointed to the washing of sin. It pointed to regeneration. Uh, Paul makes that connection in his letters. It pointed to adoption. And namely, uh, God promises to be our God and make us His people. It promises a new and eternal life. Uh, Abraham understood that, for he looked forward to a city that had foundations, whose designer and builder was God. Abraham looked forward very clearly to eternal life. That circumcision pointed to membership in the covenant community, for sure. Um, or membership into the church, however you prefer to put it. And it also testified to covenant responsibilities, namely faith and repentance. You know, faith in God's promises. Without faith, the, the, without faith the, you know, the, the sacrament is not going to be of any comfort to you whatsoever. In fact, without faith, the sacrament only serves as judgment, doesn't it? So it testifies to uh, really the covenant responsibilities, uh, to God's promises, faith and repentance. Uh, faith in God's promises, the center of which is the... Son who is to come. Genesis 3.15. I keep pointing back to Genesis 3.15. It's very important to keep pointing back to that because when we point back to that, what are we pointing to? We're pointing to the gospel is what we're pointing to. We're pointing to the gospel. And also faith in God's intention to be our God and to make us people. Who, who are we that God should, should treat us this way? Who are we? What is man? Is God is mindful of him. And the amazing thing is he is mindful of us, isn't he? And it's really, truly an amazing thing. Now, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, as we saw here recently, 
and we survey the Word of God for the meaning of baptism, what do we discover? Well, baptism points to the same stuff, doesn't it? Points to union with Christ, for sure. Union in His death and resurrection. Union in His uh, new life, if you will. Points to the washing of regeneration, if you will. In other words, to new birth, the washing and cleansing of sin, to new and eternal life in Christ Jesus, to adoption into the family of God, to church or covenant membership. And baptism also testifies to our covenant responsibilities. That's probably the one we need the least commentary on because that seems to be the one that we hold on to, you know. I think early on we might get it in our mind what baptism is about is our covenant responsibilities. Baptism is about our, uh, our faith. Baptism is about uh, the decision that we've made to follow Christ. We seem to cling on to what, uh, what we're on about quicker uh, and earlier than, you know, getting on about what God's really up to. Um, so, yeah, baptism also testifies to our covenant responsibilities, namely faith in Jesus who has already come, faith in God's intention to be our God and to make us His people. So, uh, in the same way as we're going to see this morning, when Christ introduces the Lord's Supper, He doesn't do it in a vacuum, but He does it within the, the deep and rich uh, heritage of the Passover. And my, my prayer is this, is that as, as we reflect on this, that we're going to find ourselves more and more blessed as we come to observe the Lord's Supper, uh, which we'll be doing next week. So... Um, that's my prayer, that we'll be richly blessed as we partake of this rich sacrament. So let's, let's begin by looking at Genesis 15. Um, and of course, in our study of Genesis, you'll recall that in Genesis 15, the Lord's coming alongside of Abram, and He's, merciful, he's mercifully, very mercifully comforting Abraham in a time of um, weakness, and a time of frailty. And I think it's Probably, I mean, maybe for some of you, it was for me when I first began to study the life of Abraham, that it's, it's really eye-opening that the father of the faith struggled the way that he did. Because I think when we first read our Bibles, we get, maybe get it in our minds that these, these guys were great in the faith and they didn't struggle at all. Uh, but actually, as we begin to study our Bibles, uh, we see, you know what, they, they struggled in many, many ways. And here's a time. What, what's going on with Abraham? If you look at verse 2, I mean, Abraham is he's, he's continuing to be childless. He's been promised a child. And verse 2 and 3, he says to, to, to the Lord, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And notice how the Lord responds to him. Verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is all familiar to us, most likely, because we've been studying these passages. And then God goes through that strange ceremony that we observe. You know, this where he calls. It's strange to us. wouldn't have been strange to Abraham. A ceremony that often accompanied the making of a covenant where animals were slaughtered and the, the, their, their carcasses were cut in half and they were put opposite each other. And um, um, God instructs Abraham to do just that, to, cut, to slaughter these animals, put the carcasses on either side, and then God passes between, he passes between these 
carcass is in essence to say, listen, if I don't, I'm promising you a son, I'm promising you descendants, Abram, and if I don't fulfill my promise, may I, may I become like one of these animals that have just been slaughtered? But God also adds a detail here that I've been saving until now. I haven't talked about verses 13 and 14, where God says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, with that thought in mind, let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. And let's follow this thread through. Exodus chapter 1. And begin reading with verse 8. I'll go ahead and start reading while you're turning there. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their, bitter, their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So we also learn from the, from the narrative that Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites so ruthlessly that he ordered the slaughter of their infants. And, you know, it's amazing what the people of God have endured throughout the centuries. Um, I think we, you know, he commanded the midwives, you know, in an, in an effort to try to uh, curb the, the uh, population of the Israelites. He commanded the midwives to kill those baby, those baby boys as they were being born. If you turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we find what I find this to be really, especially verse 24, to be one of the most beautiful verses in this whole narrative. Uh, Exodus 2, 23 and 24, a beautiful passage. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And with the backdrop of what I've just been describing, look at verse 2 or verse 24. Look at the beauty of this. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his what? His covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In other words, God heard the cries of his people, didn't he? He heard their cries. He remembered his covenant. What covenant? The covenant that we've been studying. The covenant that he's made with Abraham. And what ensues for the next 10 chapters of Exodus is God's deliverance of his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh. I can remember as a boy when I was first learning about the plagues I remember thinking, like, what's up with these plagues? <laughs> like, like, what's up with the frogs? Am I the only one in the room? <laughs> like, the frogs. <laughs> what in the world? Uh, it seems so 
like random to me. Frogs, gnats, flies, uh, water turned into blood. What in the world? Why didn't God just go get his people out of Egypt and just bring them out of Egypt? Why didn't he just bring them out of there? I've always believed he could have easily done that. He didn't have to go through the flies, the frogs, the gnats. The he didn't have to do that. But he did do that. And I didn't understand the significance of what the Lord was up to. I, I didn't understand it. You know, Pharaoh was arguably, if not the most powerful man in the world, he was at least one of the most powerful men in the world. And he was viewed by many as uh, sort of a semi-god or god himself. Uh, by many people in that culture. And there's an important point we need to grasp here. And let's start with the first plague. You know, you don't need to turn there. And, and, and I'm not going to go through all ten plagues. I'll have you to know. <laughs> We'd be here a long time. But in the first plague, in Exodus 7, Moses is instructed by the Lord to take his staff and strike the Nile. And when he strikes the Nile, you know the story. What happens to the Nile when he strikes it? It turns into blood, doesn't it? It turns into blood. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, the Egyptians really, uh, uh, they, uh, to the Egyptian mind, they, they owed their entire um, uh, creation and sustenance to the Nile River. Now, that's where the water came into what otherwise would have been a desert. And uh, not surprisingly, they worshipped it as their creator and sustainer. And one of the gods of the Nile was Osiris. And it was believed that the waters of the Nile River actually flowed through the bloodstream of Osiris. Now, had we been, you know, part of that culture, we would have believed that or at least would have been familiar with that. So by transforming the river into blood, what is the Lord doing? He's doing a lot of things. We could talk about that the rest of the morning. We won't. But one of the things he's doing is he's showing himself to be sovereign over Osiris isn't he? He's showing himself to be sovereign over Osiris. And I think it's interesting that he turns into the blood. If it's believed that the water has flowed through the bloodstream, it's conjecture on my part, but if you believe that the water has actually flowed through the bloodstream, it's kind of interesting that God turns the river into blood, isn't it? But again, we could talk about this a long time, and with great delight, by the way. The same thing's true of the frogs. I mean, as children, we may ask, what's up with the frogs? And when the children aren't listening as adults, we might ask, what's up with the frogs? <laughs> what's up with the frogs? Well, we, we should let the great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, answer this one, shouldn't we? It's been a long time since I quoted uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, quote, there was a, suitable, a suitableness in God's choosing the frogs to humble Egypt's kings, because frogs were worshipped by that nation as emblems of deity. Images of a certain frog-headed goddess were placed in the catacombs, and frogs themselves were preserved with sacred honors. By these be thy gods, O Egypt, thou shalt have enough of them. Pharaoh himself shall pay a new reverence to these reptiles, as the true God is everywhere present around us in our bedchambers and in our streets, so shall Pharaoh find every place filled with what he chooses to call divine. Is it not a just way of dealing with them? What is Spurgeon saying? You want frogs? I'm going to give you frogs. Can you imagine when you had that turkey ready to bake? 
and you opened up your oven, and three frogs come crawling out of that oven. Yeah, I remember reading this stuff, uh, uh, yeah. and I remember just giggling and laughing. And Tammy would ask me, she'd see a Bible in my hand, and she'd say, what are you, what are you laughing at? I'm like, this is funny. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I could just imagine what it looked like when, when, when these women opened up, the, opened up the stove. And could you imagine frogs jumping like right out in your face? Yeah, Laura's facial expression is killer, man. Um, it, would, it would really freak you out, wouldn't it? I mean, that would really scare you. Um, well, obviously, we can see what God's up to uh, here. And, and really, it amazes me. I mean, if you wanted to make a sculpture of a beautiful goddess, <laughs> would you give her the head of a frog? <laughs> I mean, to each their own, and nothing against frogs. <laughs> but I remember someone saying something like, and there's a proverb that goes something like this, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you get a prince, isn't there something of I don't know. Enough about that. This is no slam on a frog. All jesting aside, what's going on here? There's a contest. That's what's going on here. It's a contest which really is no contest at all. The Lord has shown Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that he is God. That he is God. And there is no other. And it's very merciful that he's doing this. It's very merciful that he's doing this. Now, this contest will continue all the way through the nine plagues until we come to the last one. If you, if you turn with me to Exodus 11, I would ask you to turn here. Exodus 11, verses 1 through 7. And of course, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're turning to the last plague. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more, yet one plague more, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there's never been nor ever will be again. But not even a dog shall growl against any of the people of, of Israel, either man or beast. You may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And that brings us to the institution of the Old Testament sacrament, let me repeat that, the Old Testament sacrament of the Passover. And the event is actually so significant that as we turn to the pages, as we turn to chapter 12, we'll see that this event changes the calendar. How many events can you think of that are so significant that they altered the calendar? But this one does. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Of course, what is to take place? The narrative tells us that each household is to take a lamb. And the lamb shall be a year old without blemish. It shall be kept until the 14th day. And on the 14th day it is to be slaughtered. Its blood was to be painted on the doorposts and lintel of each house. 
the lamb was then to be cooked and eaten. And, of course, that night, when the Lord afflicted the tenth and final plague, as the destroyer came through town, if he saw the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, he passed over the household. Thus, the name Passover. Look at verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And notice this phrase here. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. And skipping down to verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, backing up to verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And of course, this feast would come to be known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, hold on to that, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, look down with me to verse 24 and following. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, this is one of those moments where it's like, okay, you've received a box on your front porch. It's something that you've bought. Assembly's required. You bring the box into the living room. You dump all the pieces out on the floor. Um, I've got pieces scattered everywhere right now. Uh, let's begin putting them all together. A number of weeks ago, I preached on the subjects of unity and conditionality. You remember that? Some of you will remember that. This is so very important. Unity and conditionality. And in that message, and many times I've argued that we have one covenant, we get a glimpse of it in Genesis 3.15, and it runs all the way through Revelation 22, and it's the covenant of grace. It falls under two administrations. The old administration, which is an administration of types and shadows, and the new administration, which is the fulfillment of those types and shadows. God had promised Abraham that he would have numerous descendants. What happened? Abraham has numerous descendants. God had promised that they would be oppressed by a foreign nation. What happened? They found themselves in Egypt, oppressed by Pharaoh. So, um, oppressed, the people begin, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord remembers his covenant with Abraham and he delivers them. But we need to understand about this deliverance. This deliverance is much more than a deliverance outside of the borders of Egypt. It goes way deeper than that. And it's, it's actually deliverance from the oppression of Satan himself. Now, why would I say that? Because this administration is an administration of types and shadows. Pharaoh 
is a very powerful man, arguably one of the most powerful men. Were the people of Israel able and in their own accord to simply stroll out of Egypt? The answer is no. They were slaves. A slave is someone who does not have his or her freedom. A slave is someone who has been uh, contained, uh, imprisoned, if you will, by some outside source. In this sense, Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh is a type of Satan himself, isn't he? He is a type of Satan himself. And this deliverance is deliverance not only from the evil one, but also deliverance from unbelief. We could put it this way. It's it's deliverance from the world, the flesh, and the evil one. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with folks, and they've said to me something like this. And some of you have talked to people and heard the same thing. They've said something like this. All I need to do is get out of East Liverpool. All I need to do when I was doing ministry at Columbiana County Jail years ago, a lot of the folks I was ministering to were from Cleveland. And they would say, all you need to do is get out of Cleveland. I just need to get out of Cleveland. Or others would say, all I need to do is get out of Wellsville. Or they might say, all I need to do is get out of this job. Or all I might do is get out of this this geographical location. Man, we need more than that. This deliverance here isn't simply deliverance across the border of Egypt. That's not what it is. That's not what's going on. Um, why, I asked as a boy, why did God have to go through all the plagues? Why the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the water turned into blood? Why all of that? Because God is showing us that our deliverance runs much deeper than the city gate. We need delivered from our idols. We need delivered from our unbelief. Ask yourself this question. Are you madly in love with Jesus? Is He the most important thing to you? And as you answer that question, if you answer that question in a negative, it's because the frogs got you. It's because the flies and the gnats have all of you. And assuming that we're believers in Christ, we could put it this way. Jesus has you. But if you're like me, as you try to answer the question, do I love you, Lord, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? There are some days where I feel like I love him perfectly with 100%, or at least 90. There's other days where it's a struggle. And those days where it's a struggle, what's wrong? The frogs. It's the frogs. We've got to be delivered from... The frogs, you understand what I mean by that? I'm speaking metaphorically here. All of the things, all of the idols of our hearts, all of the things that we think we need and cannot live without, all of these things, some of which may be good things, some of which may be wonderful things, but they have such a hold in our heart that they become an awful thing because they're between us and Jesus. And a diagnostic test that we can run on ourselves anytime we want. Here's a scan. You can scan your heart really quickly with one question. Do I love Jesus with everything? You know, if you've got a day coming off, what, what do you want to do with that day? You want to spend it with God? You want to do something else with it? These are questions that we could ask. The deliverance that Jesus is promising is deliverance from all of that stuff that's between us and Jesus. Our deliverance cannot be accomplished by a pilgrimage. 
There's so many trying to advance their deliverance today by making a pilgrimage to a certain location, to a certain geographic destination. They're on the road to Shambhala, if you will. Our deliverance is going to take much more than a trip to some hidden land or mythical land in the Himalayas. No. But where would this deliverance come from? Or I should say, from whom shall this deliverance come from? The answer is the Passover lamb. It's the Passover lamb. Not the many Passover lambs that have been slaughtered, but the one and true Passover lamb of whom all these lambs pointed. Remember that the, sac- the sign of the sacrament always points away from itself. The Passover lamb is no exception. It points away from itself to the true Passover lamb, doesn't it? The sign always points away from itself. That's one of the basic fundamental errors that we can fall into and end up in a mess. We can end up outside of orthodoxy quite quickly if we, if we go astray on this one. The sign always points away from itself. The lamb detained by the 10th of the month and sacrificed on the 14th of the month. The lamb pointed to the true lamb. Now, if you turn back with me again to Matthew 26, you're probably wondering if I would ever get to it. Matthew 26. Again, I'm wanting to zoom out. We want to zoom out this morning. Instead of zooming in on a particular passage, we're zooming out and looking at a number of passages to see how they all fit together. In Matthew 26, verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread. Remember I asked you to hold on to that? Unleavened bread. I say, well, we got that. We know a little bit of something about that, don't we? Yes, we've just done a survey and we've learned a little bit of something about unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the what? The Passover. Now, what is Jesus and his disciples about to do? Well, it's easy enough. They're about to observe the Old Testament's sacrament of the Passover. Now, if we look down to verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now what's going on here? What's happening here? What's taking place here? This is what's taking place. The lamb that the disciples have slaughtered and have just finished eating is pointing away from itself to the true Passover lamb who is sitting at the table with them. Right there. This is what John the Baptist was saying when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. He was right there. Right there at the table. That very night that Jesus celebrates the Passover with his closest disciples, he institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So just as circumcision pointed to the Messiah who was to come, so did the Passover. 
The Old Testament sacrifices of types and shadows, they point to He who is to come. And now baptism points to the Messiah who has come, who is here, who is alive with us. And the Lord's Supper also points to the Messiah who has come. Now, I've given you a lot of information. Some of it you'll forget. And that's okay, because Lord willing, we'll do it again. Every so often, we'll do this again. Uh, but remember this one thing. The Lord's Supper has for its foundation the sacrament of the Passover. Do you see the richness? That just a simple survey like we've taken this morning of the narrative of Exodus 11 and 12, do you see what that does for us in our understanding of Matthew 26 and what's taking place there? Let's remember this one thing. The Passover pointed to the Lamb who was to come, and the Lord's Supper points to the true Lamb who came. And in the true Lamb, we don't experience a half deliverance. The deliverance that Jesus gives us is not a deliverance over to the, to the border of Egypt or to the city gate of Pithom or Ramses. No, it's much, it's much more than that. It's a deliverance from the frogs and the gnats and the flies and all the other stuff that's in our heart that needs rid of. And in Christ we experience a total and complete deliverance, don't we? From the world, the flesh, and the evil one. And we'll pick up right here next time. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the rich things that You've given us. That, O oh Lord, You would be our Passover lamb. Oh, Father, we thank You that You've given us a word that explains all of this to us. We thank You, Father, that You've given us understanding. We don't profess to have complete understanding, but we thank You for the understanding that You've given us of these things, Father. We thank You that they point to Jesus. And we thank You that the deliverance that Jesus gives us is a complete and total deliverance. We thank You for His willingness to step in our place and die in our stead. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.